Welcome to Shadows on the Sound, a podcast about the stories, superstitions, and mythologies that withstand the test of time. I'm your co-host, Kamala Thompson, analyst, author, and paranormal hobbyist. And I am your other co-host, Z.D. Gladstone, personal chef by day, creative writer by night, and psychology nerd since the day I was born. This week, we're joined by Summer Nectarhoff, a prolific author. I was going to list off all the books, but you have quite a few. Can you tell us a little bit about your series and your latest release? Sure. So, yeah, like you said, my name is Summer Nectarhoff. Uh, I'm a fantasy author. I've published, like, um, a wide variety of books, I guess. But, yeah, I can see how my list is a little intimidating at this point. I think there are, there are 19 on Amazon at this point. Uh, but, Holy crow! Yeah. Uh, my last three books are really short, though. They're novellas, just about 120 pages each. And they're called the Hourglass Novellas, and they take place in my fantasy world. They're just medieval fantasy. Nice. Very cool. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say so much intimidating as awesome. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still working to get my third out there. And uh, yeah, no, I'm just really impressed. I'm still working Mm -hmm. on getting my first out there. So that tells you something. (laughs) The novellas I found particularly uh, impressive. I I, I don't know about, well, no, actually, I do know about you, Kamala, because you've written short stories. I, I have a really hard time writing short stories and novellas for some reason. Oh, really? Yeah, I try, but my brain just keeps wanting to add more. Yeah. It's like, well, this is good, but I could make it better. Kind of like, you know, like, well, I could do a one layer cake or I could do a five layer cake, you know? Like, I, t- I totally know where you're coming from. I mean, just uh, what I do though, when I'm, when I'm writing something like that, I keep in mind, like, when I set out the word target that I'm going to hit and I just. Oh focus on that like 100% as I'm going and I keep it in the back of my mind and that helps with that. That's impressive. That um, is very cool. Yeah, I, I, I write short stories occasionally, but I wouldn't say I write them well because <laughs> I just keep wanting to add detail. I think our last weekly geeky query was what is the worst representation of love in fiction? Oh, yeah. yeah. So did you get any answers? No. <laughs> <laughs> if you've been looking at my blog at all, you might have picked up on the fact that I am in the process of moving. In fact, I am in the process of moving across three time zones. And it's amazing how much work that takes. So <laughs> I have had like, oh, my poor blog has, has gone to the side. Although I do have an update this weekend. It'll be short, but awesome. Nice. Um, uh, so no, I, I've completely spaced on asking anybody about it. But I still have my original answer. Let's hear it. Which is, I, I think a lot of people in our generation may not be familiar with this, but I think it was in the 70s, maybe, or maybe it was the early 80s. There was a movie that came out, and now I don't even remember the name of it. I think it might have been called Love Story. But it had this famous line in it that I'm sure you've heard, which is, love means never having to say you're sorry. Oh, That's- God. <laughs> right? <laughs> Right. And it's one of those things that at the time, because it was such a popular movie, everyone was like, oh, it's so romantic. And then they stopped and thought about it. And they were like, wait a minute. What the fuck? And actually, the actor who was in that movie did another movie later, a comedy with um, Barbara Streisand called What's Up, Doc, where in the final scene, they actually make fun of that line. Because he thought it was so stupid too. <laughs> nice. So, so that one spent top at my list, and I haven't thought of anything better. So, how nice. about you guys, uh, Summer? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. So, well, 
now that you mention it, am I allowed to uh, spoil books on any level? Uh, um, that's up to you. Yeah, let's just give a little warning. <laughs> they can they can okay. forward just a tiny bit. Which book is it? The Inheritance Cycle. So that's what starts with um, Aragon. Okay. By Christopher Paolini. Yeah, so you can fast forward a little bit. But um, I, the whole series builds up to this. I mean, like, I read it when I was, like, a teenager, like, full of puberty and, like, super excited. Oh, like, yeah, the yeah, idea yeah. of, like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read elf. the first three books, and then I never read the last one. Yeah. <laughs> well, then. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if I should keep keep going. But basically, Go he left me with a severe case of blue balls at the end of that, which was devastating <laughs> to my my young elf-loving self, I guess. Oh, no. I can, I can, I know, I don't, I haven't read the book, and yet I know what you mean. So it's like, okay, <laughs> all right, good to know, good to know. Uh, I have a, I have a few, but I don't, don't like bad-mouthing authors. <laughs> like, I just have a, it's not really bad-mouthing, I just don't agree with their perception of love, so I'm just gonna do it anyway. Go for it. We, if we don't, if we don't feel free to disagree or critique one another, how are we ever going to grow? Right. So everyone knows that um, my feelings on Beauty and the Beast. Oh yes, I think that's one of the most dysfunctional, messed up versions of love ever. And I have a blog post about it, so I won't rant about it now. Just one. Um, maybe a few blog posts about it. You got me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to take off a lot of people and say Twilight. Oh yeah. oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Worst, worst. Or I should say, best representation of unhealthy yes. adolescent yes. obsession. Yes. <laughs> but I, not I never read the books, but do you guys see the movies? Uh, I, I watched some of them. Are you familiar with Rift Tracks? Rift uh, Tracks? No, I'm not. Okay, so do you remember Mystery Science Theater 3000? Yes. Yeah, so some of those same guys now have this this thing they do called riff tracks, where they basically MST3K these popular movies, and you you can uh, buy the riff tracks and listen to them in conjunction with watching a movie online. They're reasonably cheap, and they are hysterical. And that is how I watched the Twilight movie. That's funny because what I, I, I just recalled uh, in the first movie, uh, he's like her lab partner, uh, Edward. Yeah, I just remember that scene like so well. How she's just like smelling her armpit, and it's just like the most awkward scene in any movie I've ever seen. <laughs> well, the parts that disturbed me a little more than that were the fact <laughs> that she thought it was awesome that he was watching her sleep in her bedroom without she, her knowing about it, right? And then when he decides to end it with her, of course, for her own safety, she decides that she should kill herself. Yeah, and she like, unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unhealthy. very codependent. Um, I'm looking for the other book, and it's probably good I can't find it because then I can't tell you the author and the name of the series. But there's a trend we've actually talked about in paranormal writing where we have these ultra uber alpha males, or as I like to call them, alpha assholes, to differentiate them from the healthy leader. <laughs> I hate it when you hold back and I can't tell how you feel about things. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so it was such an extreme um, that she was literally telling the guy no, but he knew she really wanted it. 
And there was like internal monologue that she really wanted it, but there was no like verbal consent. Yeah. So how would he know that? Oh my God. So yeah, so we, we need to do some work on these alpha males. Uh, we should probably move topics before, <laughs> yeah, we yeah, yeah. before this turns into a big rant fest. Sorry, world. So Summer, what are you reading and what are you writing? Well, right. So right now I'm in that same fantasy world. I'm writing like a huge epic that I'm hoping will be about 3 million words or so. Um, so it's going to be really, really big. And, uh, I, I've already written like a million or so in that world, um, between some of my other series, but this is, yeah, this is going to be a big undertaking. It'll take a while, but I'm really excited. As for reading, I'm finishing up the first law trilogy by Joe Abercrombie. Cool. Mm -hmm. ZD. Oh, what am I reading right now? Actually, right now I'm reading a book that my mom lent me. Um, it's a, I can't remember the name of the author, but it's a, it's a popular, uh, popular novel out right now called A Man Called Ove. Hmm. And it's, sorry, my <laughs> time zone change and lack of caffeine makes it difficult for ZD to find words. <laughs> so it's, it's a, it's a contemporary real world fiction book, but it's great. It's about this elderly man who was uh, recently widowed and just lost his job. And he's a total curmudgeon and it's, it's told from his point of view. So an uplifting tale. Actually it is. It's kind of a dark comedy. Oh, okay. And it, he's such, he's such a, he's such a cute curmudgeon. You know, he's the kind of guy that if you couldn't tell what was going on inside of his head, you'd just be like, oh, what a jerk. But since you know what's going on inside his head, you just you just want to keep reading. <laughs> You're like, more, more. Chew out the person for leaving their bike on the lawn. More, more. <laughs> um, so that's what I'm reading right now. Uh, as for writing, again, with the moving kind of not writing, although I'm thinking a lot, which is good. I'm, I'm thinking through stalled plot points on a number of my stories. Um, thinking about characters who aren't as robust as I would like them to be and fleshing them out in my head. And I am taking notes. So even though I'm not writing, I'm still working on my stories. So. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. I'm a completely lost cause. Uh, so I just finished Graveyard Shift. Uh, I think it's Angela. It's either Roquet or Roquette. Um, and now I'm working on Hounded, the first in the Iron Druid story Ooh. or series. <laughs> I am writing book four of the Hunted series. Book three is still slowly moving through production with the publisher. So, yeah, trying to get a head start on the next book so it doesn't take as long to get that one out. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Yes. <laughs> So moving on to our main topic, I'm very excited about this one. And Summer, thank you for suggesting it. Mm -hmm. Game of Thrones. And specifically, we're going to be talking about all the wonderful creatures and mythology behind the story. The Draugar. <laughs> Draugar. I was going to say, is that how it's pronounced? Because I, I don't know if I've ever heard any two people pronounce it the same. Draugar? Yeah. Uh, Draugar? I've heard it pronounced Draugr, I've heard it pronounced Dragar, I've heard it pronounced Draugr. Like, Draugr, that sounds more German. It's like really old, old Norse, so... Yeah, you just gotta grunt. As long as you're grunting when you say <laughs> it, it probably will come out right. 
okay. So that actual term never comes up in any of his books. Uh, the reason why we're talking about it is because when I saw the whites and the white walkers, mm -hmm. that's the mm -hmm. first thing that popped into my head because, um, well, honestly, because Skyrim. Anyway, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I did look into the, some of the terminology behind the, cre the key creatures. White, which is the creatures with the blue eyes. They're the newly resurrected animals and humans. That's actually Old High German for sentient being. Really? And originally, it likely only meant human. That's interesting because Weisse or Weiss means to know in German. So I guess that makes sense. Cool. And then I also looked at Warg, which is our skin changer within the Game of Thrones series. And Warg, or Varg, is a wolf in Norse. And more specifically, it usually referred to Fenrir and his sons. I'm going to slaughter this skull and Hati. Hati? <laughs> Hati? Yeah, yeah probably, probably the latter. <laughs> Question mark. Um, so I thought that was interesting to look at the terminology. Now, when you look at the history and how these words were used in literature... Uh, I kind of feel like some of these authors do what I do. Hmm. I go and I research like old Romanian or uh, Slavic languages and I see something that's cool and I'm like, I'm going to use that in my book. So like in my series, I use Venaptor, which is Romanian for hunter for a specific vampire series. So I kind of get that's an awesome word. Oh, thanks. So <laughs> I kind of feel like <laughs> I kind of feel like this happened and it started with, I think, Tolkien. So Warg. It's Norse, um, but if we look at how this was used in the book, so these people are people who could see through the eyes of animals specifically that they've bonded with, and some not so bonded, but we look at that with um, Ed Stark's children. They find the dire wolves, right. they form a bond with them, and they start having dreams where they're actually seeing through the eyes, but they don't know it. And this is in the only one of books. This is in the books. It's different. Oh, okay. So, so okay. So, so really quickly, cutting you off there. So, disclaimer: so everybody knows where we're coming from on this one. <laughs> so, I have not read the books, and this is for a very particular reason. Not that I have no interest in reading the books. On the contrary, I'm like slathering to do so. Mm -hmm. But I cannot watch a series or a movie and read the book at the same time. It messes with my head. I have to like stick in one version to the completion and then go to the other one in order to be able to enjoy them properly. That's just me. You're so since I started with watching the show, I'm damned to watch the whole friggin' show, however many decades it takes, <laughs> before I can go back and love the books. Well, what's so. funny about that is the show is going to probably resolve itself before the series, written series does. Um, and you're going to think I'm a freak of nature because I saw an episode. And then was like, I got to read the books because this is confusing. So I've been. No, that's how most people feel. <laughs> <laughs> I binge read the books and then I finished watching the show and was like, wow, this is kind of different. Yeah. Just, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. How about how you, Summer? What's your, what's your position? Have you done, seen the show and read the books? Just read the books. Oh, I've done both. I totally started with the books, though. Um, okay, I, smart I, man. I guess I'm on the purest side of the spectrum and I wanted to like get the original into my system before I watch the show. Yeah, very cool. That makes so, sense. In a bit, we're going to talk about how we feel about both of the show versus the books. Um, so I, I kind of want to, let's dive back into those creatures. Right. Yeah, I just wanted to explain why you might say something yeah. and I might disagree and be like, no, that's not how it's done. And you'll be all like, no, that's how it's done in the book. But, you know, part of the charm of our podcast is us arguing. So. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so... 
Lord. <laughs> yes. Um, so oh, well, it was. it's actually something that I came across. I don't know if you guys saw this either, but I think um, I'm just, I'm going to pronounce them drought, I guess. That, I'm just going to make my stance known. Um, they're draugr when they're coming from my mouth. Um, they, okay. they actually first came into like more modern literature with Tolkien too, because like his Barrow Whites in Middle Earth um, yeah, are based on the Draugr. Yeah, yeah, um, and they're cool, man. If you look at Old Norse <laughs> mythology, these are these are people who were buried, typically sitting upright or standing, and the whole purpose of them was to guard their their treasure. And um, they used to do all sorts of interesting things to prevent it from happening. One burying them laying down. They're lying down. Oh, God, I always screw that up. (laughs) Sorry. With an open pair of iron scissors on their chest and straws. That seems like the natural thing to do. Right? Yeah. Um, They're like, this will weight them down, and here's some scissors for you to cut your straws. I don't know. Um, (laughs) That's very interesting. So let's go back to warg. And uh, this refers to the people who see through. Sorry, I just have to say, well, that reminds me of the ancient Egyptians. Because, of course, if you were wealthy Mm -hmm. and you had slaves and you died, you would actually have some of your slaves killed and mummified, semi-mummified, and buried standing up to guard you and any wealth that you were buried with. Well, that's a great point. Um, a lot of these creatures, you see variations of them in nearly mm-hmm. every culture. Um, mm-hmm. We could look to Western Europe and look at the revenants. We could look to uh, Slavic Eastern Europe and look at uh, Strugoi and Moroi, which people seem to associate with vampires now, but really they were originally either the Strugoi were dead bodies that were inhabited by spirits and usually witches commanded them. And the Moroi were living creatures usually like bears or dogs that were inhabited by uh, malevolent spirits. And now in retrospect, oh, those pesky malevolent I know, spirits. but I'm like, was it rabies? Anyway, um, <laughs> you see them in nearly every single cor- culture. And I keep trying to circle back to the warg, um, the, the skin changers, the people who could see through the eyes of their animals. You also see that in several cultures, including indige- indigenous Americans, um, North and South America, where you have folks who go on vision quests, they have spirit animals, and then they also have skinwalkers and skin changers. Uh, and you see that in other cultures as well. Where uh, warg came into play with Tolkien it was actually a word to describe demonic wolves, which kind of makes sense if we're looking back to the word, which barg or wolf in Norse. Although in the movies, they totally look more like hyenas. Are, but, the, the wargs are the what the orcs or the goblins ride? That's, yeah. Okay. And then with, um, with Tolkien again, he had Bjorn from The Hobbit, who was oh. a skin changer. Right. So he used both the word to be the de- demonic wolf type things. And then he also used the same concept. I don't think this is, I think Tolkien really influenced R.R. Martin quite a bit. Um, yeah. If yeah. nothing else in the initials. <laughs> I mean, if you haven't figured out by now that the way to have success in literature is to have two middle names, one of which has to be an R, and make sure that you go under the pen name of your first three initials and your last name. This is the secret, ladies and gentlemen. Don't bother going to writers' conferences. Just change your name. 
disclaimer, she didn't really mean it. She didn't really mean it. Oh, don't I? <laughs> Call me ZDR from now on. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, so moving along. We talked about Draugr's. Um, and the White Walkers reminded me of them, but we should separate out White Walkers and Whites because they well, had different functions. First, I think you've forgotten um, what I think of as the most important quality of the traditional Draugr. And hmm. that is that they can also turn into seals at some t- sometimes. What? Very important. Well... <laughs> Are you sure? I've no, only it, ever heard of that with Irish self. No, it, it depends. It depends <laughs> on where you are. He's right. So Draugr, <laughs> it could refer to people who were buried in protecting their, their treasure, but it also referred to people who drowned with their ship. Um, yeah. So, so I think that that would have been a really good twist, though, if the White Walkers could turn into seals. Wouldn't well, have seen that coming. No, not well, in a gazillion years. Particularly but, since in our culture we tend to think of seals as being ridiculously cute and sweet. They are adorable. Um, however, <laughs> later on in the books, um, where there were references to a castle up in the north and water being around it and them having influence over that. So I am looking forward to that in future seasons. Bum, bum, bum. Right. I don't think I spoiled anything for anybody because it's complete conjecture on my part. Awesome. Uh, more creatures. Dragons. You knew I was getting to it. Oh, come on. You I had to. to. Talk about I it. had to. I had to. So another interesting thing. These creatures are found all over the globe, which is so cool. So you've got a lot of serpents in indigenous North America and South America, both water and land serpents. Uh, we have the traditional idea of dragons, which came out of Europe. We have dragons all over Asia, which is so exciting. And then in India. And uh, the Indian dragon, the Naga, was actually brought up in George R.R. R. Martin's series. Was it really? Yes. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> when? It's so exciting. How do you guys feel about dragons? Well, when? Any yeah, when? Just No, when were the Naga brought up? Oh, uh, I think it was in... The city that Araya, Arya, Araya, the oh. city that she went Aya. to, um, it wasn't okay. really featured very heavily in the television series, but it was more heavily featured in the book. Oh, interesting. And it was really just a mention. They had several statues that referred to creatures that may or may not have existed in the past, and I think that was one of them. Hmm. Well, did you read the World of Ice and Fire book that came out recently? I did not. Well, that. He- that was like it was so awesome, and he talks about in that book there being um, ice dragons far to the north. Yes, I heard. Yeah, that was really exciting. <laughs> I when I uh, did you guys ever play Warcraft? Uh, no, because I knew I would try to lead a legion and never see daylight again. Ha! That's awesome. <laughs> I um I played the strategy game Warcraft three and. Mm-hmm. When I wrote the first fantasy series, like my my whole goal, uh, my end goal was to somehow wiggle a frost worm in there, and I did. Yeah. <laughs> wiggle a frost worm, nice. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I wish I could say pun intended. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Um, so should we get a little more into the mythology that actually takes place within the book? Because that's one of the things that really impresses me about George R. R. Martin. 
Well, mm-hmm. it's a it's a brilliant example of how you know, as as we've talked about before, authors need to know. They need to know. <laughs> Summer, I'm sure you can back this up. An author needs to know their world. You know, <laughs> you need oh, yeah. to know the world. Even if your story only takes place in a tiny corner of it, you need to know your world. You need mm-hmm. to know. You, you need to know the geography. You need to know the plants. You need to know the politics. You need to know the weather systems, even if they never come up because they influence things. Well, and you see that because a lot of the story takes place in areas of trade. Mm. So you're getting a lot of people from different cultures with different mythologies. And these things come up throughout his book. And I just think that's so interesting. And it's one of the benefits of writing from a multi-person perspective is that you can see a lot of different uh, viewpoints in different parts of that world um, at one time. Although I do find with his books that you really have to concentrate while you're reading them so you can keep track of everything. Mm -hmm. Because I'm kind of worried when the next book comes out, I'm going to be like, who is this person again? And that's going to detract a little bit from the story because there's just so many people. So, so hang on a second. Let me, let me, let me derail this conversation for a second by asking. So, so Summer, having, having written an incredible series of books that take place in what sounds like a pretty well-developed fantasy world of your own. Did you start that before you started reading these books or did George R.R. Martin's books influence or inspire you in any way? Good question. Um, So the, I definitely read them before that I wrote the fantasy books Um, and they have unfortunately and fortunately influenced me a ton. Like as I'm writing right now, um, The series that I'm writing right now, this big one, is in a world similar to Westeros. So as I'm writing, I'm definitely like, oh, crap, can't do that. George R. R. Martin did it. Like, <laughs> I have to, have to find a new way to use the Draugr. Um, yeah, so that it's definitely, it's, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse because I probably, I mean, I don't even know if I would have written uh, fantasy if I hadn't read The Game of Thrones however many years really? ago. Yeah, I mean, well, awesome. it's it's definitely my favorite fantasy series by a long shot. Um, that and the Malazan Book of the Fallen. I don't know if you've read that. No, mm-hmm. I have not. I have not. Well, fantasy. interestingly, they have Draugr, too, and I didn't realize it until I was reading yesterday because they um, because the Draugr can also um, sort of, like, turn into, like, sand and travel, like, through the earth, mm-hmm. and his undead can do that. Wow. That's, that's, that's the awesome thing about being an author, I think, is you can come up with your own twist, even if there are already established rules. There's a lot of more obscure creatures that I enjoy writing about because they're not as well known and you can take more license with what you're doing with them. Yeah, because the reader will have fewer preconceptions. Exactly. If you're writing about a vampire or a zombie or a werewolf, um, everybody knows what those are. Right. You instantly get an image in your mind. If you diverge significantly without just cause, mm. you're just going to make people mad. Yeah. <laughs> right. They're going to be like, he has rainbow hair and fangs. What the hell? And sparkles. <laughs> oh no. They did that. They turned the vampire into a My Little Pony. <laughs> I might have to edit Steve, that out. Stephen King turns his like, have you guys read The Dark Tower? Uh, no, but he does mention vampires in, um, the second after the shining, uh, Dr. Sleep. 
Yeah, well, sort uh, of, gotcha. sort of a vampire-ish thingy, and I love the way he right. does it because because yeah. I don't think he ever even uses the word vampire. I'd have to go back and reread it, but it's the well, image that you get in your mind from the way he describes them. Well, in the stand, and then his son Joe Hill also knows Ferratu. Haven't read it yet. It's on my list. Don't say anything. Well, I just really cool. I just bring that up because his vamp it is actually like a type of it, like his book it. It's yeah. actually like a type of vampire in his yeah. uh, in his world, and it's a clown. So it's got the rainbow hair going on. He pulled it off. <laughs> nice, <laughs> good tie-in. That was awesome. <laughs> um, so I would love to talk about what George R. R. Martin does a little bit differently in his books. Um, he did obviously have a lot of influence. I feel. I mean, he, he could probably know better than I do from Tolkien. But, oh, for sure. Yeah, but it's really cool what he's done with the legends about the children of the forest. And then what he's done with the Whites and White Walkers. Because the White Walkers, they have this king. And the Night's King can turn humans into White Walkers if he influences them in infancy. Which I thought was really interesting. And then the White Walkers, all of them have the power to resurrect any fallen animal or person. As long as they didn't die by fire. And then he also gives them vulnerabilities, which I think is really cool. The mm-hmm. they're susceptible to fire, dragon glass, or valerian steel. Right. Now the Knights King um mythology, do you get that from the TV show? Because it's been a while since I read the books and I know it's in the TV show, but do they explicitly say in the in the books that the Knights King can turn infant infants into White Walkers? I no. no, they it's it's implied because he does okay. take newborn children. Mm-hmm. Right. But you never takes, really find out what you right. do what he does with them. It's heavily suggested that we're gonna find that out in the next season. Right. Yeah. So the season, the television series is where that's coming from. It's not coming from the books. Okay, cool. So yeah, I guess I should say, was that his idea? Because I know he still has some influence, or were the writers like, no, this is going to be really awesome? In which case, the writers, I'm, I'm on the writer's side on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it irritates me when people take license, and other times I'm like, yeah, that was kind of better. You know? No, I mean, Game of Thrones is like the TV show is the perfect example of an adaptation gone 100% right, as far as yes. I'm concerned. Yeah, probably yeah. because the author has been so closely tied in with the oh, yeah. show. I yeah. mean, you, I, I'm assuming I'm not telling either one of you something you don't know when I you know, say that he has written out an outline for the rest of the series and given it to HBO. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think he, he even, even started... He it to his publisher. He gave it to HBO because <laughs> he was like, just in case I don't make it, and we love you, you really ought to exercise and eat healthy. He he, like, he's like just in case I don't make it, you guys need to finish the series right. And yeah. good for him. Well, I think he also started out in television as well. Um, he? I did not know that. Yeah, and he's definitely written a ton. He he's written some of the episodes as well. So yeah, he definitely has his hand in the pot there. So I got to bring up the guy who came up with the languages that they mm-hmm. use for the show. He is awesome. Mm. So like. Oh, yeah. Call Drago and and his people. That was a language, man. You can't fake that. Yeah. Like when people just use no. random words, it doesn't work. But can you imagine him telling his mom, "See, mom, this paid off." <laughs> I'm pretty sure she was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> never gonna. Yeah, be I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for that conversation. Right? <laughs> oh man, it's so true. 
Okay, so the Children of the Forest, I wanted to specifically bring up because ZD, they reminded me of fairies. They oh, the fairies. Yeah. 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 They're I mean, so tiny. They're real fairies, not like cutesy little Tinkerbell fairies. Which so. I love. That's the part I love. They can eat you. Um, but they're really tied into earth magic. And I thought that was awesome. I, I expected you to kind of go off on that one on a tangent. Well, that's because they, you only just barely meet them in the show, and that's all I've seen. Oh. Well, they're really awesome in the books, too. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. No. And, I mean, from what little bit I saw, I mean, I was totally like, oh, hey, look, fairies. Like, real ones. Um, mm-hmm. Which... Oh. <laughs> Back me up on this one, Summer. You know when you've met somebody who's like in the know with fantasy, when you say fairies and their minds go the Duwatha Dudanin and the little people under the hill who would just as soon drag you into a fairy ring and make you lose touch with reality as grant you a wish. Versus you say fairy and they're like, Tinkerbell. That's how you yeah. know who's in the in group and who's in the out group. You or know what I mean? <laughs> when I hear fairy, I go straight to the King Killer Chronicles. That's See? that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. I have much to learn from both of you. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, I mean there's something like that in any any culture, any art, you know, it's like a good example, like you're you're a painter. Yes. If you go up to somebody and you say painting, and the first thing they think of is plastic Crayola brushes and the little plastic rainbow <laughs> trays that we all got in like kindergarten. If that's the first place their mind goes, instead of going to like an actual easel and like mixing their own colors because you have to know how to do that, that's how you know who's in the know and who isn't. Who's in the in group? And who's in the out group? I'm a cook. And and when I say, you know, Japanese food, if the first thing their mind goes to is a, you know, a a California roll made with crab with a K (laughs) versus going to, you know, um, making a real bento box out of the lacquer, you know, or or, or I should say. you screened me out. Yeah. Making miso soup with actual uh, miso paste as opposed to a mix. It's like, okay, now I know who's in the in-group and who's in the out-group. But it's like that all over the place. Okay, so you guys have real street cred and I'm on the fringes. We have a stuff. With fairies. Yes. That's, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> uh, but I... Yeah. And I really like how it, this is just turning into a George R. R. Martin love fest on my part. <laughs> well, it can't be any other way. I would have to leave the show. I know, I know. But the way he does religion, I love it. I love it oh, so yeah. much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you've got the red priestess of the Lord of Light. You've got, oh, you've just got so much variety. You've got the Westeros main religion that the first men brought over. And then you've got the elemental um, worship of the children of the forest. And then you've got the weird, I shouldn't say weird, different religion that Araya is so um, intimately introduced to in oh what's the town what is the city that Bravos one. or Pentecost? yeah Bravos yes this is Bravos in the TV show I don't know about the book yeah but that's some shady shady shit that Melisandre can do and I like it 
for shadow magic? Come on. Like when I, I, I mean, the thing when I think about her magic, the first thing I think of is her like sacrificing or like killing all those leeches, and like it results in all those king di- kings dying in the second book. That's yeah. like the one that. Yeah, like it talking about to like how he's influenced me, and just to further answer that question, like my series that I'm working on right now is super focused on religion and stuff because when I'm reading a song of ice and fire or watching the show, like the mystery behind it all, like what are like the old gods and like what is um like Relore, like that's her god, like are they actually real or is there only like the many faced god that Arya worships? Like, that's the stuff that, like, drives me crazy and, like, I'm thinking about all the time. <laughs> well, and then I also wonder if all of the magic that Melisandre and, and other people who are practicing their religions is possible because they mentioned that once the dragons came to life, all the magic came to life, too. So did the dragons help activate all of this? Are they tied to some kind of magical pole? Ah, any questions? <laughs> so, so Summer, I mean, George R. R. Martin makes absolutely no bones about the fact that he takes the vast majority of his inspiration from actual history. Hmm. You know, he he makes he he you know, he, he flat out says, you know, hey, my template is actual British history, War of the Roses, you know, the whole thing, which is, I think, freaking rad. I mean, that's. That's about as cool as it gets because I'm I'm a big history buff. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously you do your research when it comes to language and it does uh, comes to supernatural creatures. But I'm wondering if you actually go to any real world history to help you get ideas um, for your own stories. All right, that I have another pretty interesting answer I think to that one. Um, so my first fantasy series that takes place in my universe. I call it the Pantheon Cycle. Um, just this group of series that I've written. Um, I sort of just like pulled that out of my butt. I just like wrote, I was like, I'm gonna write fantasy. And I just like made it happen. But the second thing I wrote, um, I spent a lot, a lot of time researching um, King Arthur legends. So I read um, all the stuff from the Middle Ages. I took a course on it too. And then I wrote actually a 400,000 word epic in Middle English um, Dang, that, takes, that takes place in my fantasy world. And it, it forms the basis for the series that I'm writing now because it's a text that's supposed to have been written in this world mm-hmm. um, a thousand years before the present. And because they're like these foundational legends for these people and they're focused on religion um that's how i'm working like the mystery into the present world that i'm writing now they're trying to like figure out what's real what's not and how it affects them like the present day but as to actual history uh no i don't your theory and legends are actual history (laughs) some people think that that's true but no i don't i don't like research the war of the roses or uh, like the Scottish clans, the way that uh, George R. R. Martin did. I'm, mm. I definitely look at the old legends a lot. Mm. Very cool. Very, very cool. I like it. So we've been dancing around this. Let's talk about the difference between the books and the television. So you both mentioned that you really um, enjoy the series. Summer, you, you basically said that there have been some changes for the better. 
the one thing I felt was missing at least in season one and a bit in season two was the references to magic. Um, the relationship between the Stark children and their wolves and their ability to see through their eyes was, was really downplayed. Mm-hmm. And I, I frankly missed that. I think that was my only complaint though, was that particular, the warg aspect that was really missing until much later. That was my one complaint. Everything else, I think they did really, really well. That's interesting because I would take like the opposite um, stance on that issue. Like, don't get me wrong. I love like the warg stuff. I love the white walkers, but part of what makes a song of ice and fire so special to me. And the reason why I like game of Thrones so much is that magic is so mysterious and it comes in at the periphery of -hmm. the world. Um, So you really are like, wow, what is this? Like it really has like this tremendous air of mystery to it and bringing it in later is a lot of what for me differentiates the song of ice and fire from other series. So that doesn't bother me so much. The main difference, the main difference that I see between the books and the shows is just one of economy. I mean, the books are so much huger. The scope is so vast that it's really just, the show is just a distillation of what's going on in the uh, written world. And another thing I think he does well, um, a lot of people get angry when he kills off characters. Mm-hmm. But his his world is rife with conflict. And I'm glad you brought up that he bases this on history because assassin and uh, intrigue and, and war was such an instrumental, instrumental piece of that history. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that these people die, especially when people are vying for control. Yeah. Absolutely. And I didn't see any of it as gratuitous. Even the Red Wedding, I'm like, it made sense on a level. Speaking of the Red Wedding, I just read this yesterday. Like I, that was one of the things I thought that he made up, but no. I read like an interview and he said he got it from an actual event. That's why I mentioned the Scottish clans earlier called like the yeah. Black Dinner, where basically the same thing happened, where um, there was like a dinner and like, I think, I think it was the other way around though. Like the guests killed all of their hosts at the Black Dinner. They like, killed an entire clan of people like in the middle of the night or something and like drums were playing too and so it's pretty cool except for the people who were there yeah Um, (laughs) but yeah yeah i can't remember if it was the guests or the or the hosts but that is a fascinating chapter in in history if for no other reason than the widespread culture at the time and not just in europe around the world uh, there's a there's like a sacred contract mm-hmm. between guests and hosts. You know, you do not violate the laws of hospitality. And so, aside from the brutality of it, breaking that that contract, that social contract, was a huge deal, huge deal. And they they talk about that in the TV series a certain extent too. I don't know if they mention it as much in the books, but you know, you really get the idea that because they even seal that contract with bread and salt yeah. when people first show up. So yep. you get the idea that, whoa, that's, that's, that's a big fucking no, no. And if you want a good yeah. laugh, go on YouTube and look for the reaction videos to that. In oh the gosh. I love that YouTube video. <laughs> oh yeah. I love those too. 
you could tell like the hardcore nerds versus the people who were just into the show because all of us knew like I kept watching my husband as we got closer to clo- and closer to it in the series just to see his reaction because I knew it was coming yeah. and it's so funny because George R.R. Martin he's like yeah now you know why your nerd friends were upset 11 years ago yeah I think one of the brilliant things about taking real history as a template for his stories um, is that George R. R. Martin doesn't have to think too much about which characters to kill off because history right. will tell him which ones are going to. And I mean, obviously he doesn't follow it completely faithfully. He tweaks things here and there, obviously. But um, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm writing a story and I'm thinking about who to kill off, the fact that I know who I'm killing off from, you know, from the very get-go influences the way I write them and what yep. they do. And it's like, it makes it harder to make it a real shock. Mm-hmm. It makes it harder to make it real. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I'm definitely a pantser. Uh, so I don't uh, outline very much. So I don't really, I wow. generally don't know who's going to die until they die. And it just happens. And I'm like, damn, I can't believe he just died. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, you have no one to blame but yourself. I used to write that way, and then I got tired of all the rewrites that I personally have to do. Like, some people, uh, they just, they know where they're going, even if they're pantsing. Like, you probably mm-hmm. know where your series is headed. I have right. to, I know where my series is headed, but I have to know where my book is ending so that it's, it's enough of a standalone, and I don't just leave it open-ended. I, I get you. I don't know. I think it's interesting how people are so different when it comes to that sort of thing. Well, and it's it almost depends. religious fervor. Yeah. I pants, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, it yeah. varies. There are some stories I outline and there's some that I just, you know, go for it and see what the heck happens. Let the, let the characters tell me what's going to happen. Uh, that's true. Like, but when it, a story is so vivid in your mind, yeah, pantsing works. It, you know, when it's just playing in your head like a movie and you have to write it. Yeah. That's, I, those stories that are loud. I think that's how most of my stories start. But oh, then cool. once I get stuck or slow down to the point where I get frustrated, suddenly it's like, God damn it. And then I have to actually <laughs> sit down and outline. Or, or I'll write something and I'll love it, but at the same time, I will know it doesn't work. You know, I can feel it in my blood. It's like, no, I liked writing that. It was a lot of fun. Usually I copy paste it, put it into a separate document and so I can go back and admire it later. <laughs> I have a lot of that. Do you guys not have that? Like I have entire documents that are just scenes that I have cut out of stories because I couldn't leave them in either for length or for relevance or whatever, but I'm like, but I really like it. So I happen to go back and read it. That's okay. funny. I have, I don't, I actually don't have any scenes like that, but I've got, yeah, I've got like entire graveyards of short stories that are, that I've just like not published that are just sitting there. And occasionally I'll like look at them and be like, yeah, it was nice knowing you, but I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more like a Band-Aid person where I just rip that shit off and it's gone. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, although it's not really grown because Scribner kind of keeps it. So if I have to resurrect it, I can. Oh, okay. Well, we could talk about Game of Thrones all day. And and we didn't even get to the food, man. We didn't even get oh, to yeah. the Oh, yeah. So that is the one book I did read. I read the official cookbook, <laughs> which was not the official cookbook when it was first published, but now it is. Now it has been given the blessing. Martin's blessing. Yes, the blessing. So, um, Let's see. Our next book review is actually an anime series review. Would you like to say a little bit about that? I forgot. Yes. 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 Um, 
if you're not an anime fan, this is your chance to get into it. Uh, because Bakano is a great series. It's not too long. It's very creative. It is confusing at the get-go because it's an ensemble show, meaning you're following several separate characters and you have no idea why you keep jumping between them until you're a few episodes in and their stories start to coalesce. But <laughs> it's mysterious and there's there's an, an element of magic in it that you're totally not expecting and it's dark and it's hilarious and at the end you will walk away from it thoughtful and happy so sounds life-changing it it will it will change your life for the better. <laughs> so yeah good one give it a watch i like it i'm gonna rewatch it that's how much i like it and the weekly geeky query for this week is if you were a warg which animal's eyes would you like to see through summer uh-huh. I know it's it's an interesting one. Summer, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Can you tell us where to reach you on the interwebs? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here too. This is, I mean, I can't imagine a better topic uh, than (laughs) A Song of Ice and Fire and the Draugr in particular because they're so cool. But yeah, I can be reached pretty much through Twitter and Instagram. They're where I like to hang out most. And I can be found at at Nectarhoff for both of them. Awesome. Well, thank you out there in listener land for tuning in. If you have feedback, questions, or ideas for shows for us, we really would love to hear from you. You can find Shadows on the Sound on Facebook and on iTunes. And you can find Kamala Thompson on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram at Kamala Thompson or on her website, www.kamalathompson.com. And even though I've been off in packing for travel land, you can find me, ZD Gladstone, on Google Plus and on my blog, zdgladstone.blogspot.com. And we do review our social media accounts pretty obsessively so take care and keep an eye on the shadows you never know what's lurking